The reproductive justice framework is the human rights framework on steroids. It's incredible. Um, we're looking at it from an intersectional lens. We're centering black and brown bodies. We're not just centering cis bodies. Like we're understanding there's a whole scope of people that need to really be seen. Because if you're not seeing people fully, you're dehumanizing them. Hola, hello, bienvenido, and welcome to the Clear Birth Podcast. Today, we will be speaking with Malika Hodge. Malika is a staunch public health advocate and leader whose calling is to stand up and center black and brown birthing and non-birthing persons who are at the intersections of multiple oppressed identities. She is a nutritionist, certified full-spectrum doula, and a certified lactation consultant. She is a native New Yorker and is of Garifuna and Caribbean heritage. Health equity work is her calling, and she's implemented and founded public health and education programs throughout New York City, Boston, and the Dominican Republic as a Peace Corps volunteer. For women, children, adolescents in the criminal system, and families, her lived and professional experience brought to light the importance of having a racial justice, trauma-conscious lens that encourages safety promotion and healing at all times. By day, she works at Centering Health Institute as the New York City program manager in collaboration with the New York City Department of Health to improve maternal and infant health outcomes via the use of CHI's facilitative group care model at several hospitals and healthcare centers throughout NYC. Welcome, Malika. Thank you for having me. Oh, definitely, definitely. I wanted, we usually just start off with a few questions. Um, So the first one is like, what career did you want to do when you were in grade school, high school, and college? I was pretty consistent with those three areas until the end of college, but I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, Growing up, I was... um, I think grade school, it was a little bit of veterinarian, but then pretty much towards the end, it was like, no, I want to be a doctor. I was uh-huh. very interested in the brain in particular. Um, so like neuroscience is something I was looking into. Um, but that started to shift probably in high school. Like I had an opportunity to work at the, um, at Mount Sinai Hospital, actually, oh, um, wow. shadowing doctors one summer, my junior year, and I got placed in the intensive care unit. And I realized probably then, and I wasn't ready to admit it to myself that medicine wasn't for me because um, of the way there was no like um, respect for people who were dying or in my opinion not enough respect mm-hmm. so um, I would come in one day and then people were in the beds the next day you know new people um, and so I felt like that kind of like stark okay like we're not gonna I understand we need the beds but there's gonna be no sort of like transitional ceremony and stuff like this really made me feel very uncomfortable um, and then by the time I got to college, I just felt there was a couple of things like, but I felt kind of scienced out. I also was first generation, um, and I didn't really have all the supports I needed yes. to do the best I could in my science classes. And I think in retrospect, looking back now, I finally learned to study in grad school. Um, but I think that really like messed with my self-esteem a bit. And I also realized I was really interested in other things as well. So I was very um, taken with philosophy and theology as well um, in college. Um, and then after that, I went back into, I always knew I loved health, mm-hmm. loved population health in particular. So um, after kind of like doing, like I did Peace Corps and I was doing a lot of health-based things um, there when I was in the Dominican Republic. 
um, I was just like, hey, I think I really want to make sure like I'm I'm working on on health from an educational type of lens. Um, and so I went back to school for public health with a focus in nutrition. So I got my MPH with a concentration in nutrition. And it was while I was getting my degree that I realized that I liked birth work because mm-hmm. I took a nutrition class that was focused on that was focused on maternal and child health in particular. And I realized that my brain was just moving. And I was just like, wow, like this is this is what I love. Uh-huh. Like, I I think I love this. I think I love the nutrition part connected to the birthing part. And I think I love even the sociological aspects of public health. And so it took me a while to find my niche, but I think I'm finally there. Okay. So then what initially you had the health and you mentioned that the nutrition part connected to birth. Is is that what connected you to then do birth work or to become a doula? Yes, because when I was taking the course, um, I was taking, like I said, a maternal and infant child nutrition course. Okay. Um, and it was actually a pediatrician that went back to school for nutrition that was teaching the course because like, doctors don't learn anything about nutrition. Um, exactly. And she was just like, that needs to change. And so during that class, we spoke so much about breastfeeding and just the power of breastfeeding um, and all the scientific like background with just the main, just the fact that God allowed our bodies to do that and the way it does it, I was just so floored. But then, you know, of course, being in a course, um, one of one of the few black women in that lecture hall, there was a lot of data that came out about like black women and like how black women aren't breastfeeding and all this. And I remember thinking about like the historical disconnect because black women all over the world have breastfed other people's babies and caretake other people's babies. Exactly. And um, I just remember thinking, like, what does this mean? Like, I'm so interested in this, like, deeply interested. Does this mean I'm going back to school for nursing? What does this mean? Mm-hmm. And so I realized I was just like, huh. And I think I was actually talking to my sister. And she said, well, one of my friends just became a doula and got trained. And when I researched it, I said, huh, this will, this will be, like, a good field to let me see, like, how how deep I want to go in this field. Does that mean I want to go clinical? What does it mean? So it was like a perfect opportunity to kind of see where I fit. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I got involved in doula work. So doula work came probably like a year or two after I was done with my MPH. Okay. That's wonderful. And so now when you took decided to do doula work, where did you start? Who did you take your certification with? What organization were you involved in? So I started with Ancient Song. My friend, um, my sister's friend got trained at Ancient Song, and they seem to have like a very um, intersectional lens to looking at birth, especially with centering black and brown bodies. Yes. Which is my interest. Whenever I do things, I especially I, I censor things from a very black-centered lens. Um, so I took my training with them. Um, and then after I did my training with them, I, um, cause you know, with certifications, you need to do a certain amount of births. So I think yes. I did a seven week training with them. I finished up my births and then I was just like, well, where do I go from here? Right. As you know, we mm-hmm. talk about oftentimes, like there is no, um, real framework for <laughs> do with the color. Yes. And so after you finish this training, you're kind of like lost at sea. Um, as with many trainings, because you're like, what do I do? How do I make an income? 
um, especially because in particular with ancient song, um, there's a focus on um, women of color, as you as I mentioned. Yes. Also, women of color from low socioeconomic backgrounds. So it's compounded um, cases, you know. Yes. Um, with like dealing with severe inequities and. Um, it's very important, and I feel like a lot of the women and birthing persons and people who are involved with that organization are very passionate about serving um, Black and Brown communities that have been disenfranchised. And it's also really hard to make a living in that way, right? Like when you're trying to serve people um, who are poor while you yourself are poor, yes. or, or just an income away from being poor, right? Mm -hmm. Because you don't have probably generational wealth in your family. Like you don't have anything to fall back on. So if I'm, for me personally, if I'm not generating income, I don't have a pot of money from grandpa, grandpa, somebody. <laughs> that you I could use pay. as a resource. Yeah, bills still have to be paid. You have to pay your rent. You have to live in the city. You have to get to those births. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so that posed a big problem. And then I ended up um, joining the collective where I met you, the New York City Doula Collective. Um, I actually yeah. found about the collective through um, a black woman who was in my training, um, my training at Ancient Song. Um, and I think knew one of the women there. And she said, well, I know they're looking for new people. And um, yeah, so I applied. Mm -hmm. I, I was just like, I really want to be able to get some hands-on experience with this. Like, I need a place where I'm going to be able to get birth at first on an ongoing basis with some income. Mm -hmm. uh, so, luckily enough, I got into the collective. I was actually interviewed by you. Yes, so I, I recall that. <laughs> I don't know. I saw you and I knew you were really special. And I was like, okay, if she's here, then this must be pretty okay. Um, yeah. So, you know, and then we were on that journey together. And I remember... Yes cornered you and I was like I want you to be my mentor yes because I wasn't taking mentees at the time and yeah. I was just like I I can be here for you but I can't mentor you I had too much on my plate I needed to clear off some things I, I really enjoy mentoring and I really wanted to be able to give you the full value and you wore me down you were like oh, I, I <laughs> going to be my mentor the moment I saw you <laughs> now but that's yeah. no, it's a later. Yeah. Um, You're like, I'll wait. Yes. I, I will wait. And and I appreciated that. And and I made space. You definitely. Did. You yeah. did. And I think even you were like mentoring me on the peripheries, because I would still reach out to you to ask you questions. Um, with that particular collective, there were not a lot of women um and persons who shared my story. Yes. And there were a couple of us, but it was predominantly a, a white space, even yeah. though at the time there was some there was black leadership. And as we know, with the way um, power works, we can have a black or brown face in leadership. And that does not mean that we're not perpetuating white supremacy. And so we had severe issues in that like particular space, um, particularly like violent space for me. Um, and I was also grateful to have the opportunity to just build up some of my client base yes. so I can build up some of my experience. But I mean, you know, it, it was weird. it was like a microcosm of what we're seeing with a lot of organizations, even the current one I work with, where, you know, we want black people to say we have black people, but we're not really for black people. We don't want to pay black people well. We don't want to make sure that black people um, share their ideas. Right. Yes. Make sure their ideas are protected as well. Don't just take them and, yes, and, and make them your own. And then we don't get a, any credit and ec any economic right like yes. gravity from what you're sharing with sharing with the world, like our knowledge that you're now sharing with the world. So I felt it was, you know, um, and sometimes it's very abusive. Um, so that was hard. Yeah. But I 
don't think that's the only place where that's happening in the birth world. Like I mentioned, like it was hard during my training as well. Like I, I think um, in particular, the birth world um, is a very necessary space. It's something that we need, you know, do we, yeah. need doulas, we need the midwives, we need the community health workers, we need a certified lactation consultants. We need um, OBGYNs that are dedicated to looking at birth and looking at service in a different way. We need all of us. Like we need a whole coalition, a whole army of a multitude of different people. And I just feel like instead of building and breaking down things that are violent, right? Because a lot of us saying that we understand that giving birth in the American context for black and brown people, for black women in particular, is very violent, right? It's traced all the way back to slavery. Um, And we want to change that. Sometimes we're saying that in our words and then we're continuing to perpetuate the same violence. You know, like I said, you know, the end to making sure that birthing persons and women are having just births and the means to get there has to be all tied into liberation. Like we can't expect black and brown women um, and persons to take the most difficult cases and not pay them. Right. Like that. It's violence, right? Like yeah. we can't, like we can't continue, like I say, to to pimp out like people who are passionate warriors and movements and want to do well. Yes, right? exactly. You don't want to use their work and their content, but not really put forth the work to make the change that needs to happen in in mm-hmm. birth work. And so, in that context of how do you envision all of those pieces working together, especially for women of color? Besides just having the doula, like we need to have them have a, a birth experience that they don't just come out with and then you had a baby, right? It's It should be more than just you had a healthy baby and you have a healthy mom. There's a lot of context that gets missed along the way. So how can we help change that for women of color? I think um, I think what's missing sometimes with this is like, like I said, like public health is my jam. Like I love yes. it. Yes. Uh, and um having like a public health framework that is really rooted in like, like the reproductive framework, like the reproductive justice framework is the human rights framework on steroids. It's incredible. Um, Just the way that we're looking at it, we're looking at it from an intersectional lens. We're centering black and brown bodies. We're not just centering cis bodies. Like we're understanding there's a whole scope of people that need to really be seen because if you're not seeing people fully, you're dehumanizing them. Like there is no in between with that. Right. Exactly. Um, And so I think like, I'm so blessed for um, particularly like the black woman who came up with that lens um, for the Kimberly Crimshaws who came up with intersectionality. Like I, I just feel like that has like blown my world wide open in a way I look at things and even tracking my own growth and the way that I'm seeing things. Because like I said, if we're not careful, Right. Like when we're just going through the process of the fusion, it's going to be white supremacist, white centered, harmful to black people. So if we're not practicing active diffusion at every point, we're practicing (laughs) all the things that are harming us. So like for me, like I love being able to have um, a group of people in my community, including you, who check me on my stuff and we check each other. Right. And making sure that we're looking at things in a more comprehensive lens. Um, I think in particular, we have to see things um, within a public health framework, as I was saying, where. I'm, I'm always thinking about what are the conditions to allow people to make the best choice to their families. Yes. And I also have the constructive assumption that every woman and birthing person wants the best for their family. Right. 
And how do we transform that from just being um, a desire to an actual mechanism where this can happen, right? Like I just had a conversation like with someone from senior leadership at my job because it's like, well, we want to have safe and healthy places for black people. And Mm -hmm. I don't want things to say it, but if you're telling me you want me to eat healthy and all I got is Popeye's, KFC and Burger King, those are the conditions that I am in. So like what choices am I going to make? Right. It's telling me that you, you know, like that your particular healthcare system is holistic and comprehensive. And then I'm looking at your mortality rates and I'm looking at like the patient satisfaction and on high cesarean rates. Yes. I'm also looking at the fact like that I can't trust the police department. I can't trust. You understand like the supermarkets, yeah. maybe there's a food desert or the supermarkets are an mm-hmm. So You have to really look at this as from the from the full and scope of like the social fabric has to be perpetuating do no harm. And yes. I don't think we're there yet. So I think. When we're not really thinking about all the little pieces that we need, um, even as we're saying, let's dismantle things right now, like with the movement, everybody's like, let's dismantle the police. Right. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, this this marching and this uprising is a lot more than just dismantling the police. Right. Yes. It's like, how do we create a a just society that allows oppressed people to no longer be oppressed and then to even identify as being oppressed? and that's a lot more than just let's break down the exactly how are we going to feed into a healthy social fabric and so i want us to be able to do work in a multiple of different ways because we need all different types of people and scopes and people working at different levels and different positions so that we can reimagine um and evolve a new world where you know that we don't even have to think about a mom who doesn't have a safe space to live, doesn't have a job with benefits, doesn't have health insurance. There is no such thing as documented and undocumented. I mean, I'm I'm just thinking like, what what is, would this look like to blow this wide open? Yes, yeah. yes. I'm in, I'm enjoying that space too of reimagining. There's definitely been a conscious shift in in the sense of if we don't have this structure, what can we imagine to put in its place? And and I was taking a course <laughs> recently and we spoke about this and my position initially was the powers that be don't want this to happen. They're going to do everything to make sure that they stay in power. Um, and so there's not going to be a, a change that at least I will see or my child will see in their lifetime. And then this happened. And now it's getting me to reframe that and think, yeah, there there are ways that we can change these structures and not just the police, but like you mentioned, in birth, in health, and what would that entail? Like what are your what are the two the three top things that need to happen in order to at least start to shift that paradigm? Mm. Well, I think to I'm like a huge fan of Audre Lord, right? And yeah. like he's on some other level. Because sometimes yeah, I'm definitely, and I think I understand it, and then it hits me like months later. I'm the same way. Oh. I will read her stuff, and I don't get it. And I'm like, I'll read it over and over, and then I have to sit with it, and I'll be doing something abstract, and then it'll come to me and say, "Oh, that's what she meant." That's like, what yeah. she meant by that. Yes. You know, so even, or even sometimes I thought I understood what she was saying, and I'm like, "Oh yeah," and then I'm just like sitting with it, like. Both her and Octavia Butler just completely like, I mean, when you tell me like take my mind and everything that I thought was true apart into little pieces, 
Yeah. Those are the two folks that really do it for me. But with Audre Lorde, you know, some one of her quotes that gets thrown around a lot that I thought I understood until recently was like, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Yes. And I remember being like, yeah, you know, I totally agree with that. And, you know, but I think I didn't really fully understand the scope of what she was saying until recently, because I'm even looking at our movements um, and we in my opinion, have yet to have a true liberation movement in the in United States. Like, I don't consider the civil rights movement to be no, it was uh, not a liberation yes. movement. Um, because, you know, whenever we two are using the same types of standards that white folks use to get to get justice or freedom or equality, sometimes I think we fall into we want equality. And I think that's problematic because we need to want justice. Yes. Um, we need to want to, again, reimagine something that looks different, like whiteness and white possessions and white possessiveness cannot be our measuring or a baseline for what we're fighting for. In exactly. my yeah. And so it didn't hit me until recently because I said, even in our movements, we are so very um, male centered. Mm-hmm. We're still very cisgender centered. We're still very cut. Like we have, we're severely colorist in the way that we, who we elevate, who is able to speak on people's behalf. Um, we still don't have a global context to yeah. the movement. I think we're also um, sometimes. I fall into fault of forgetting like what happens here. If, if there's police brutality in the United States, it's happening in Brazil. Yes. It's happening in Vienna. It's yeah. happening in Palestine. You understand? So like, I think like we need to be able to really understand um, how to be like interconnected because what happens in one place affects yes. brown people in all places. And I think we're I, having a good time with that. I, I think that is that. You're definitely right on hitting the nail on the head with that. I um, watched Angela Davis recently and she, she spoke of the same thing and saying the things that we do here set the tone for the rest of the world. And we also have to stop singularly thinking. It's very American to think of ourselves and only ourselves as the center of the universe. But like you mentioned, it's happening all over the world to black and brown people all over the world. So if we want change, we have to start that change here. And what that change looks like will help them reimagine what their change can be as well. So in in that sense of of change and reimagining bringing us back to what can we do like i'm always i'm a problem solver and as a doula that's what we are we solve problems we see things coming we're ahead of the curve when we're watching at birth like what could potentially happen three three paces ahead right but in birth work and change like how are we going to navigate that full because what we're really talking about is blowing up the system and starting over from new. And like the quote says, they're not going to be willing participants of this. So how would we get that change? I think it's important, even when we're, we were both in agreement with understanding that this is the movements are intersectional and that one movement affects the other movements. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the work, step one, is like the self-awareness work that we need to to also have, um, to also examine our own privileges, right? And understand like who's not in our space when we're out and we're standing up, right? Even when I look at Black Lives Matter, right? This was started by um, 
three women, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> this movement was started by women or this movement was started by folks who um, were very centered on black bodies, both cis and trans bodies. Um, the full scope of not just, he- it wasn't heteronormative, mm-hmm. a heteronormative scope. And I feel like we look at how movements get co-opted and taken so often from women who are cis and trans who start things, right? That yeah. get the credit from the beginning of time, even when you look back at the civil rights movement. So even now when we're looking and we're saying this is our leader and that's our leader, really questioning um, even our um, understanding and leadership dynamics. And again, if are we perpetuating white supremacy, right? Like, I see sometimes we have so many speakers that are very light skinned, right? That are that are seen as the head of the movements and it keeps happening, right? Or these say or they're very light skinned or they are um they just have a very strict heterosexual or heteronormative narrative, right? It's still kind of like, well, we need them to to check this box for people to listen, right? So again, we're still using the same stratifications that we're fighting. Yes. Um, as we as we try to figure out how to fight for things. And that's why I'm like, we're, we're so, I feel like sometimes we're still more caught up in getting what white people have as opposed to what does it really look like um, when we censor, even in our own movements, like I want it to be when a trans person is killed, we're marching too, right? Exactly, that they're included in this movement. That they're included. Yeah. I want it to be when um, undocumented folks are being harmed, we're marching too. Black women, we have two black women killed in their homes, you know, and I don't feel like I see the complete <laughs> um, disparity, if you will, between how that's handled. We still have a stratification on whose who's trauma and, and death is valued. Exactly. Exactly. Because this whole movement started because of the death of a black man. But there's conversations and people are saying things like if we would have marched for Brianna Taylor, then maybe Floyd would be alive. So it's true how we center, it's not women centric and we don't hold women in, including trans women up to the same standards. And there's not, no one wants to have that conversation around the fact that there's heavy colorism in a lot of these conversations of is there's a othering of black people that happen. Um, but even with the othering of black people, and we know that it's not finances that makes the difference. It's not education that makes the difference. It is just biased, right? That their biases are the things that they look at when they see black and brown people and trans people that they can't look past that to say, this is someone who deserves me to go a little bit further. But but how are we going to check those biases? Like, that's always my question is like, how do we hold people accountable? Because there are a lot of people out here doing this work who are, you know, calling people to task and making them look at them. There are tons of, I forgot the name of um, the doctor that spoke recently at, um, at Centering who or someone who is affiliated with doing bias training oh i'm not sure huh oh you're talking about i think it was queen's hospital like they've been working on doing um like just addressing their bias right um in the medical field i mean i definitely think there's things to be done and i don't think that this is just i think white people are the source of this problem but we definitely are perpetuators too Mm -hmm. so i i do think we hold those all our 
like biases in our own communities, right, around who's worthy and who's not worthy, who should be seen and who shouldn't be seen. And I think that's some of the work that we need to do to kind of dismantle that. Like I was even reflecting on, like I've always been a really good student. Um, and although I grew up in a, the largest housing project in, in the Bronx, um, I've never had any issues with school. Like I've always had a school identity to the point teachers were forcing me to apply to programs from the time I was little, as early as I can remember. And in some senses that kind of like, I was reflecting on how um, that kind of all-star student narrative for black students living in the hood, you know, that how it's kind of grooming you to be okay with tokenism. Yes. Right. Because you're really you're getting used to being um, the one example or the one of few examples. Right. That's doing very well. And you're getting the gold stars and you're moving up. And then I'm like, and if you're not reflective, right, then you get to the workplace and then you're okay again being the only one. You're not asking questions. Why am I the only one? Why does it look like this? Because you become it grooms you to become complacent with those other people don't work hard enough. And the structures, yeah. And the structures, like, you know, like when I was in the hood, I remember thinking like, these people are always outside. They're not reading. They're not blah, 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 blah. And it wasn't until like, actually when I went to Boston College, which is a very white school, that I was, you know, studying and I was just really, and I had the opportunity to not be in survival mode, right? Yes. As I'm studying and just reflecting and looking, I'm like, this is, this is in response to structures, right? And a part of how supremacy works is they need a couple of Obamas and Michelles and people that they, and Oprah, that they can point to when we say we have a structural issue that people could say, well, they did it. He became president and she did this and she did that. And it's a distraction. And I think we need to understand those of us who do have the privilege and even, um, and who are able to talk to white folks and are in circles with powerful white folks like not being afraid to hold them to task because it's not enough to have to tokenize people yes and we can't be complacent and being tokenized you know like when we're the only one in a space and we haven't advocated for another person to be in the space with us and to make that space safer for the people who come behind us we're not doing our jobs you know what i mean like if we're if we're like, okay, treating women and persons badly because we got paid below minimum wage and worked our way up and now you should do the same thing, that's a problem. Because yes. again, there's so, many, there's so many instances in our everyday lives where we can reimagine. It doesn't have to be the same thing. And, it, and we also can't, and the reality is we can't just transform everything and, and, and dismantle it all at the same time in the way that we yes. want it to. Exactly, because then there's not thought process put into it, which means that the structure then is set up to fail if we don't do this properly. And it's true in in the sense of if we're not fighting for equal pay for everyone, then it does perpetuate the cycle of, well, I pull myself up by the bootstraps, which we all know is not true. Like there's no pulling anything up by a bootstrap to make you successful. Um, and and that's what they this this society would have you believe like you just have to it's it's because of who you are and the work that you've done and like you said if we continue that narrative then we're not reaching back and helping people behind us come to the forefront and be here because we there's enough room for all of us at the top and that is one of the things that I've always felt even as a doula I'm not in competition with another doula because there's a doula for everybody right so if 
I enjoyed our conversation and you hired someone else, that was the doula for you. But there's this scarcity mentality that they have you believe that there's only a small percentage of people that can get to the top or that can make it here. And it has everything to do with you, just you. And it, that is not the case because we all know that it, it's luck and who you've been with and who you're surrounding yourself by, who is helping you to get there. So in, in this work, what would that look like in, let's say, in a hospital? Like, right? So what would it look like to have a client come in? I guess what you're saying, it, it, what we're both saying in essence is that what happened to Serena should not have happened to Serena. But more importantly, what happened, I forget her name right now, to the young woman in the Bronx who recently passed, that should not have happened. Like she had a distinct omen and calling and she was like, I'm not going to make this. And the fact that she was not listened to throughout the entire process. I often think about what what needed to be, what check needed to be in place to help her. Like, because it's not enough to say, I don't think it's enough to say, go to a different hospital. Because again, that's not, that's, that's still there in all hospitals, the biases are there. So what, when we imagine reimagining this system and stopping that from happening, like, the places that need to be, the tools that need to be in place to help this structure change involves who? So I think you had asked me a question earlier about what are the three things, Yes, And Mm -hmm. I think, definitely, I think self-awareness is key um, and knowing that automatically, no matter who you are, you perpetuate harm. Yeah. And you have the ability to perpetuate harm. Mm -hmm. And the more privilege you have, the Mm -hmm. more harm that you're able to perpetuate. both willingly and unwillingly, because sometimes you're doing things you don't even know they're harmful, how harmful they are down the road. I also think like um, understanding the, like the humanization of yourself and others, right? I think there's a severe devaluing, right? As soon as people see me, there's certain, there are certain um, things that they're thinking about or certain things that they see, right? And even within that, there's privilege, right? Um, Supposedly I fit into this box that, says that when I speak, it's eloquent, right? And I've been playing a lot, like I've been thinking a lot about what that means. Like who do we deem as eloquent or who's not eloquent and who do we want to represent us and why and what does that look like? What does it mean to be educated? Like all these things that I'm thinking about because I think about at the end of the day, it doesn't matter, right? Like as we saw with Central Park with the guy who was bird watching, nobody, um, that Karen didn't ask him what school he went to. Exactly. Uh, what school did you go to before she called the police? No, she mm-hmm. called the police. Yes. And he was still, at the end of the day, he was still black. He was still someone that she did not consider a human being. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think we have a lot to do, even within our own communities, um, black, black people of, of communities of people of color. We're trying to humanize ourselves and others and recreate healthy relationships because there's also instances in New York City where the doctors and nurses are black and women are still dying, right? Exactly. Women are yes. still being harmed. Birthing persons are still being harmed. Trans persons are still being harmed, right? So we, so racism and white supremacy is so insidious, right? And it's so well-intentioned that white people don't even have to be around 
for us to do it to one another, to perpetuate it to one another. So I think it's really important for us to look at our relationships and with ourselves, look at our relationships with others. Um, and, and then I think the other thing that's important is making sure that we are, I don't know, creating systems that don't perpetuate harm, right? So thinking about like, what would I want? What would I want? And I want, I generally want people to have the same things that I could have. Yes. You know, because most people want the best for their families. They want the best. If I'm sure if we interview doctors about what birds they would like, <laughs> you know, what options they would like. Okay, well, these are the options that, you know, so-and-so would like to, whether they're undocumented or they're on welfare. Because I'm even looking at how policies um, and social services that poor folks have to use to survive perpetuate this narrative of you need to take crumbs and you don't have many options, you're in trouble, right? Like, why is it that Medicaid makes it difficult for people to have home births and to have the choice and the option to have home birth? So I think it's very important what to think about what choices and options are we giving to people and are they just? Yeah. Right? How do we make sure in a hospital environment um, that people have options, that you're not just doing things to their to their bodies without their consent. You know, like I think that's very important. And it could be as simple as, hey, you walk into the room, would you is the lighting fine or would you want me to dim the lights? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Making sure that you're sitting down with them to this man to the power dynamic. You're not standing over people's bodies. You're not touching their bodies without letting them know that you're explaining to, you're sitting down and you're explaining to them what the issues and problems are, that you're not blaming them, right? So many of the questions that are asked are not from a lens where we're understanding fully the social determinants of health. It's not, it's one thing to say to somebody, well, you're overweight. Maybe we should ask a couple more questions about the neighborhoods that they live in. And doctors and nurses and people in the clinical field have an immense amount of power. And I think their job by default is political. And people listen to you when you have a white coat. So I think it's important for them to be advocates, even in the political spaces, right? And pushing back. If you realize that you work at a hospital and it's in a certain zip code and people are morbidly sick, they're sick, their quality of life is diminishing. People are having kidney failure every day and and they're and, you know, and you're noticing that I hate the BMI, but if we're gonna use that as <laughs> as a Index, yes. their BMIs are higher, they still look at it as an individual problem as opposed to I'm noticing the zip code. I keep seeing the patterns of the same problem. What is going on in this community? Mm-hmm. So if you ask the patients again is what food is around, are there safe places for you to exercise and walk around? You know, like sometimes people are living in buildings, the elevator isn't working, you know, like the it's not accessible for folks that may not be able bodied. I mean, it's a plethora of things that are going on that cause people to be in a position where all they can do is submit to harm. Mm -hmm. All you can do is, well, this is the best option that I have. Why are the best options for them the worst options? Because then that's a societal problem, especially for people in power. Like that's not okay. That's a, that's a social sin, right? Yeah. Like yeah. If, you're, if people are living this way, right? I was even reading recently how COVID is affecting um, folks that live on reservations, right? Yeah. Native American folks who still don't have water. Yeah. You know, look what happened there. So when we dehumanize people, we are okay giving them less than they deserve. We live in a country where people treat their dogs better, better than, than their, their, their exactly. 
better than they treat native people, better than they treat undocumented people. You know what I mean? Like we live in this culture. Like I see a dog. I'm like, I know this dog, but on more vacations than I ever been on. It's class. You know, so it's crazy that we live in a society where we're also seeing that as normal. And we have to work on as people of color, making sure that we're not um, perpetuating the same harm and saying, oh, it's okay for this to happen to this particular group of folks. Because I've served in the same hospital clients that are white or clients that are lighter skin versus clients that are visibly black. And the treatment is different no matter who the provider is. Exactly. Yeah. You know, because even when you're looking at, you're going through the self-awareness piece, we're going through the relationship piece, we're going through even like the historical narratives that seep into the medical education for doctors and for nurses, right? It's, it's ingrained in that culture that you are going to practice on poor bodies. And then, you know, once you specialize, you leave that community. And it's ingrained that these poor people, right? Like I was even... um listening to a panel where somebody brought something up, this black doctor um, in training, she's actually at Harvard. She was just like, there's a group of black students that had to come together at Harvard to say, you guys are, every time you use a body, you're using white bodies. What does this look like on black bodies? Exactly. Identify this on black bodies. We're not even seen or included in the medical education to fully understand how to take care of ourselves communities yes you know exactly. and that perpetuates racism that perpetuates harm that perpetuates when you're looking at the research when you're looking at things like asthma right when you're looking at things like sickle cell there's less research money like all of that is very intentional institutionalized you know so we have to we have to really be able to sit back and ask the right questions and white people the ones who love to call themselves allies which i don't agree with because i think allyship is a practice it is not a noun you mm-hmm. connect with it to yourself. You can't mm-hmm. set it in your head and just say I'm an ally. It's a practice, right? So in every space, you're figuring out how much, like, how do I use my power here, right? Yeah. To uphold voices that aren't here. How do I make room? Don't invite me to your table as I read this quote. How do I break down this table so we rebuild it together? Because we might not want a table. We might want to sit on a circle. Exactly. So we need to yeah. figure, how do we even want to convene and meet to make sure that we're breaking down this power dynamic that we keep perpetuating, even as people say they're trying to do good. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's so, it's so great that you're, you're saying all of these because it ties into the work that you're currently doing now in centering. So can you speak a little bit to what centering is and how it structurally is organized to change these dynamics? So I work um, at Centering Healthcare Institute, um, and literally, I think it was the role was really having sent like I'm the New York City program manager. So I'm working with um, directly seven hospitals. And then I build consortia with um, hospitals throughout the, um, t- the city that are doing censoring. Mm-hmm. And censoring is essentially um, a group care model. Um, it started the flagship is censoring pregnancy. And it is focused on improving um, health outcomes. Um particularly under this grant that I was working with with the health department um, for black and brown women in particular. Um, But the model is also, um, there's a centering parenting model as well. There's also a centering healthcare model. So it's basically, um, they're still getting the clinical assessment piece. So it's still being billed as a medical visit, but what's already built in. So you're meeting with a group of folks, um, sometimes at the same gestational age, or they're going through the same, 
morbidity, for example, mm-hmm. if you're centering healthcare, maybe it's a group of people who are meeting who, you know, have diabetes, right? Um, so we're trying to get groups of patients who have something in common, um, oftentimes who come from similar communities or whatever. So they're coming together and they're sitting in a circle. So they still get that one-on-one time with the provider. Um, and then they are pre-COVID, right? Yes. <laughs> we're yes. able, they were able to um, sit in circles and um, the meetings are structured. Um, but also there's flexibility. There's a there's co-facilitator. So should it be just a medical provider speaking to a group of people because the provider is in a position of learning too, right? Yeah. Doctors don't know everything, as we know. Mm-hmm. Um, they also don't know a lot about nutrition, right, as we already stated. <laughs> exactly. And just by the mere fact that it's a circle, a group of people, it, it puts everyone on the same field to have equal say and not feel like, oh, the doctor is at the head. Whereas like if it was a classroom setting and the doctor sits at the head and everybody sits behind, they're all in community together. Right. And that's the intention, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at it that way, if if people are committed to following through and breaking down the power dynamics, because I don't believe just because you put somebody in a circle that we're breaking down power dynamics. No. I think it's an important symbol, but I think um, making sure, like even the positioning of your body, we we really encourage people um, not to wear their white coats after they're done with the health assessment, that they're sitting in circle and they're kind of like um, taking off their medical equipment so that they're part of the group, right? Um, And if folks, depending on the culture, if folks are comfortable even having some patients address you by your first name. And so in communities that works and other communities, it doesn't, but we're trying to figure out like, how do we even change the way um, we address each other, right? Like how do we make it um, so that patients are seen as experts in their own bodies, right? Like, um, and then if you get together a group of women birthing persons in a space, they can share stories and experiences and things that work for them. It also gives providers uh, and their co-facilitators that do not have to be clinical. So this can be a medical assistant, sometimes it's a nurse, sometimes it's a community health educator. Um, You were on a call where um, a good friend of mine, Ruthie, is very passionate and she does a lot of um, community health work and organizing. and she's a facilitator. She's like the facilitator at like Jamaica Hospital. You know, people really love her. Um, so it's bringing people into the space that can really see this nurturing environment, um, turning over ownership, right? So that it's more communal. But that takes a lot of work. Um, right now, I think a lot of it is still theoretical. Like to make this more practical, we need to really change mindsets and change actions to figure out how to do this, especially now with COVID. It's like, how do we foster a space like that virtually um, for folks, especially because as we know, when we start talking about virtual spaces and we, we're dealing with so many inequities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that we're not at a place where we're like, we can't do this, but okay, what are the conditions? Again, I'm a conditions person because I'm yeah. public health. What are the conditions that are needed so people have access to group um, virtual visits, right? Where they're able to co-manage their their health, right? With their providers from a distance. Because that's where we are now with COVID. Yeah, exactly. We're going to be in quarantining seasons off and on for a while. So it's like, how do we create these conditions? What does this look like knowing that, you know, we have folks living in small spaces with sometimes generations of different folks in their homes? Exactly. How can you foster privacy within that to have this meeting that they normally would not have with a group full of people hearing everything else? Yeah. That's a challenge. How do we have, do we have, do they have the right technology? Exactly. 
back to the abundance mindset we mentioned, we have enough money in the world to solve our social ills. So it's not if we have enough money, but the assumption, we have enough money. We're yeah. to find this money. So if I need to get Maria, Shaquama, whoever, an iPad and some headphones and internet so they can do their visits and I, and I can get them a Bluetooth scale and a blood pressure cut. And so we can make this work. There is money out there. Yes. There's money. Like what's his face? Um, Be- Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon, has trillions of dollars. Okay. So there's no reason why we can't tap into this problem. Yes. Resources to get people what they need. Like, I don't believe that like yeah. at all. So I think it's a matter of like not looking at things as barriers that stop us, but let's address what the, what the inequities are. And then let's come up with a plan. Let's find the money. Let's connect um, people to resources. A lot of corporations now are don't want to look racist. Nobody wants to look like a racist, so they're pretending to care. Let's hold them accountable. Oh, you care? So can you donate this amount of money? You know exactly. Know I do believe that as well. Get rich. Yes, it's it 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 is not just to say that you are. It is to put your money and the policies, change policies that affect people of color, and that is what's going to change the needle. And you know, I like how part of the reason why I wanted to have you on is because you're an amazing speaker and I love to hear you speak about what you're passionate about. But also the fact that you were a doula and you took this completely different turn, but stayed in the same work like that passion can fuel you to do other things. And I think a lot of times people come into this work and that I'm going to be a doula and that's all I'm going to be. And as we know, many go into nursing, many go into midwifery, but a lot of people think that if they don't make it as a doula, that then there's nothing else that, that they can do to help them on to the next path, but to stay within this work. And you've shown that you, you're able to stay within this work and make those changes. And that's really, that's really inspiring. And I love, I love that other people can get to hear that because this is not the end all to the work that we do. Being a doula is not it for everyone. And sometimes you'd like, you're going to do something else and you can still stay in this work. And so was that important to you to make sure that you still connected to this work? It was very important to me. And I think um, when I was, you know, while I was a doula, I always knew, like I said, even when I went in, it was me trying to figure out where I fit. Yes. Um, I know now that I am not a clinical person, but I literally pray to God, like I want influence over clinical people. Like I want, um, I just, I want them to have an anti-racist, anti-oppressive lens and be held accountable to have just like they have check-ins and they have, what is that called? The joint commission visits that come in to check if they're doing things correctly. Like how do we get those visits to also include benchmarks where they're covering anti-racism and anti-oppression, right? Because that's how the institutional shifts happen. Um, so for me, I always know that my scope is a little bit larger. I'm more of a macro person. I love policy. But I think it's something just knowing what they're passionate about because some people love, they love that, um, the relationships they form as a doula. That's where they're most effective, right? And for some people, they needed the doula lens. So now when they go into the clinical lens, you know, they have a new scope. So I think it's knowing like what you're passionate about and like what pieces you want to put together. And for some people, that's still a journey to figure out and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I think like doula work's incredible. And I think, again, we have a lot of work to do 
um, as a community to figure out what are the conditions to allow people to flourish in that setting. Because right now it's looked upon as like home helping work. Yes. Where we know it's very vital and it's incredibly important, but there is no um, social fabric. There is no social protections for um, women and people of color doing this work. Exactly. And we, it can't be where well, you're serving and then you're getting $400 for a burp. Exactly. Yeah. So what was that, that program that they wanted to put forth, that they tried to put forth the doula program in, in New York that failed terribly because it was just no consideration. And this is, this is what you touched on earlier of the systemic policies that are put in place to keep people of color subjugated and also working for little money. This is the most important work and other countries have managed to do it. But yet and still, when it comes to doula work, they wanted doulas to work for less than $400 because the amount of work that they wanted them to do. And I was astronomical for what they were asking and then to wait for people to try to treat it as the same way that you would treat a doctor's visit was something that I, I just don't understand. I'm going to wait. I'm going to do this all this work before. And then after, I'm going to get paid for the work that I do. How, how do you sustain yourself when you're only paying them $200? And we know that once you invo- involve insurance, they're going to say it's not worth 200 It's worth 50 So now you've done the birth. You've done the four prenatals and the seven postpartums. And you're working for less than a dollar an hour. And I just I feel also that we need to have more people of color in these rooms when these decisions are being made. And it's like now we're we're saying you you really care about black lives, then listen to us. But in every aspect, we need to be involved and not like you said earlier, we're talking about just not someone who's there as a figurehead. But and it shouldn't be just one. It should be a couple of people and it should be people who have varying opinions about how we get this work done because if we're all agreeing that it's the same way then there's something wrong like there there has to be some kind of accountability in in that and moving and moving the needle and and i feel like i'm really excited about centering work and hearing that it's in more hospitals and and that they have doctors and nurses and physicians and everybody working towards really understanding the community and and I think more of that is going to definitely help change as well. Like you mentioned policy. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think it's a great start. We still have a ways to go. Mm-hmm. Um, still even pushing the needle, needle internally because, you know, even in the curriculum, I'm like, if we're going to censor black women in particular, we need to be able to talk to them about directly about patient advocacy, yes. about informed consent. What yes. does that mean? What do you have the right to when you're in a medical space? What can you ask for? And how do we also look at this? Like you are, you know, like looking at patients as consumers, like you need to sell them on your, on your service. You know what I mean? Why should they come to you? Like understanding that we have choices and who touches our bodies, you know? And if you're not, and if you're not painting a good picture for me and you're not treating me well, then you can walk away from that. And yes. I think sometimes like we forget that because we're so used to things being done to us, especially when it's a big institution. Mm-hmm. Or especially maybe if you're a non-English speaker, right? Or even if you are an English speaker, but you're from a different country and you've just never been taught to question um, doctors because doctors are on pedestals in our society. 
And it's funny because I have some doctor um, colleagues that I work with that I really admire. And it's funny for them to also feel disempowered within the healthcare system. Yes. Because the business side of the hospital and the clinical side of the hospital often don't talk to each other. So it's a whole big hodgepodge of like bullshit. Mm -hmm. But I remind them, I said, even in that, I said, your role is so critically important. I said, because when you don't do your anti-racism work, your anti-oppression work, not everybody, right, is over somebody's naked body at their most vulnerable moment, right? Exactly. Like the way racism lands outside in a park when a bird, when this woman called the cops on a bird watcher and the way it would land if that same woman was a doctor. Can you imagine how deadly that is? Yes. And understanding like, even as we're talking about this police, right? Expanding that conversation. Because I said, we also have to start looking at our hospitals. How many people have died at our hospitals? Even you look at COVID, right? And I had to send messages out to certain friends. Do not go to certain hospitals. Make sure you get to these hospitals. Why do I even have to send those messages out? Exactly. So we need to also look at the institutional harm from hospitals, social service agencies that are killing people all the time. And I don't have the numbers, but I would not be surprised if the numbers are more are comparable to the amount of people that have been killed by police. Mm. You know, so yeah. I think we really have to understand how all of these systems are perpetuating the same harm mechanisms. And I think that's really important. And also, I think um, in particular, the birth world helped me to just see the stratification between black and white women. Yeah. And women have to understand you know, if you are, some of them are fine with volunteering and makes them feel good because they're in a position of privilege to do that. They might mm-hmm. have husbands and whoever else that have money and can sustain and take care of their family. So they think it's okay to do this for free or to do this for the reduced price. And I'm like, when you white women say yes to taking, to doing it for no pay or low pay, and then you invite women of color to come in, right? Like you are influencing like the harm. The inequities in, you know, in the fabric of the employment fabric. Because I'm thinking about like how so many white women are just like, oh, well, I did this. And they're not looking at the full scope when people don't come from wealth, when people don't have partnerships. Or as we know, most black and brown women, they're married to their their breadwomen and their family. Exactly. They're the head of households. It's hard for them to turn around and do this, leave their job to do this work that they're passionate about if they're not going to make money for years. For years. You know? Yeah. So for you to be in rooms to shake your mouth to say, women need to take $400 or women, you know, doulas need to only take this is, is a social sin. Yes. And I want to especially. Say, Go ahead. Sorry, no, no, so, no, go ahead. And I'm like, and it doesn't matter what color you are, because I've seen women of color do this too. So in the birth world, we have so much like reckoning to do. Definitely. I've, you know, the things I've watched and, and, and the scarcity mindset that I've seen perpetuated where there's this competition and people withholding jobs from, from newer doulas and there's this stratification. And even when I was in a collective, like I had someone of color even like, basically made it look like this was a sorority culture. I didn't sign up for sorority. I've never been a part of a sorority. And I was like, I was not going to start then. (laughs) Exactly. Not as a full grown adult with a whole life and a full passion. Like there, there's, there was no reason. And it's, it's true. It's unfortunate that in a lot of these cultures, it just keeps in a lot of these circles, that mindset just keeps getting perpetuated. And when they were called out on it in the past, it was an issue. It was a problem that was 
our problem, not their problem to, to fix or resolve. But I, I'm hopeful now that enough people are speaking and are going to continue to speak to say, we need to, we need to have this change and this change needs to start now. Otherwise this structure can't exist anymore. And I am wholehearted. I wholeheartedly believe that we need to stop asking black women, especially black doulas to stop working for free. Stop asking them to work for free. It is not okay. Everybody gets paid in this society, pay people what they're worth or what they ask, what they tell you they're worth. There should not be an instance where a new doula walks in and says, I'm, I'm worth X. And someone questions and says, really, are you really worth that? Well, I can do Y pay people this it again it starts with the equity starts from within and and i really hope that people who are listening to this podcast and sharing this podcast are also understanding that is a huge inequity and that there are things that can be done and it's small changes it's just not questioning people but we're going to shift gears a little now and we're going to talk about inspiration and things that inspire us. Um, and this segment I like to call daily inspiration. And the first thing I start with is like, what is your favorite scent? My favorite scent, it goes between, I really like vanilla and lavender. I like those two mm-hmm. scents in particular. Yeah. Uh, if, it, if we're talking about scent, but also like, I like the smell of like the freshness of the outdoors. Like if I'm not re- like a place that's really away from the city, I love that smell. The fresh air smell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that is a nice scent. I, those, I, I like those too, particularly, especially fresh cut grass. Whenever I go in the park and I smell that, I'm just like, oh, definitely. I love that scent. So what book, film, show, or podcast is inspiring you right now? Do you want me to answer all of those? Or no, just- or... Like or, or like, I can throw those. But my favorite books—that's hard. Uh, but I love *Parable of the Sower* and *Parable of Talents* by Octavia Butler. Like it blows my mind. Like I just love her so much, and I just—she's uh, like the person I would wake up from the dead. Her, James Baldwin, and Audre Lorde. Like those are my three favorites. So books by them just make me feel <laughs> so inspired. Um, shows. I love Pose. I thought it was so revolutionary. Yes, I love Pose too. It definitely was. It definitely was. And I learned so much and it was just so beautiful. And I mean, I still have criticisms too, right? Because going back to uh, the stratifications that we use that are imposed on us that we continue, even with the colorism and all that. So there's definitely a criticism I have there. But I, it was just, uh I'm so excited for it to come back. I really love that show. And um, and I recently watched Little Fires Everywhere, and I love that, too. And I think particularly any white woman, <laughs> under the sound of my voice, needs to get on that and see what we're experiencing. Because I think a lot of people think of racism as the extremists. Yes. Um, and they're not thinking about the racism that we face from so-called white liberals every day. Mm-hmm. that's a little bit of what it looks like and what it feels like to receive it mm-hmm. and so I just thought it was like I mean Powerful. Well yeah. um, and then I also watched um, the Toni Morrison documentary um, yeah. recently I forget what it's called I forgot the name of it I, gotta look it up. But, um, I, just, 
I just love learning about such an influential person's journey because mm-hmm. I we see the end product and it's refined and we have no idea her having to get up at like five in the morning, you know, like with her two boys, like one of the things that stood out to me, like she said, like she had a sentence in mind and one, and one of her sons who was a baby at the time, like spit up on the paper and she didn't want to lose the sentence. So she wrote around the vomit <laughs> <laughs> and just like the fight in her, you know, and she, her career blew up. Like, I don't want to call it when she was older, but she was like, I think she was in her late thirties when it really blew up. So it's so inspirational to just mm-hmm. see um, the process for for a person kind of like coming into their purpose, you know, yeah. so I really I, love that. Yeah. I love Toni Morrison as well. I, I'm, I regret not being able to see her speak a few years ago. It, I missed out. It was, she was at the public library and I was just like, I just slept on the date and then came back to, it and it was sold out. And I was like, what was I thinking? Yeah. She, she definitely, um, I recently was um, participating in girl Trek which they, they're doing a 21-day um, Black Studies, Black History Month walk where they're introducing a different woman of color. And when they did Toni Morrison, I was just enamored, enamored with just the, the, the information that they had to share about her. And just she's always, whenever you see her in an interview, she is a force and she is unwavered by the ridiculousness that is presented to her at times. And and she always called it out, right? She always was, why are you asking me about writing, writing about white people? Like, you know, I, I mean, she caught, like, just, yeah. I was lucky enough to see her. I saw her speak at um, Harvard University, like a couple, when I was living in Boston, I think that was probably like four years ago now. Mm-hmm. I feel so blessed to have seen her. And at the time she was in a wheelchair, um, but her voice, what, what, I mean, she was in this like large, like auditorium and like commanded everyone. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think anybody even caught as she spoke. Yeah. You know, she's such a commanding presence. So beautiful. Yeah. Her beautiful gray light. I like, oh, so beautiful. Yeah. And then I would say my, my podcast would be Hood Rats, um, Head Rats to Hood Rats. <laughs> I've heard of that one. I haven't, I haven't listened to it. Yeah. I have to listen to it. Yeah. Um, with Erica Hart and Ebony, and they are such a force and so honest and so authentic and lead by example. So I'm so moved by by their podcasts. Oh, that's great. I'll definitely include that in the show notes. And also when I post, I'll definitely include, I'll tag them in it. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm excited to hear that. So what what's a quote that inspires you daily? Hmm. Daily. I think that's a hard question. But I think um right now my focus is probably like I love James Baldwin's quote, um, ignorance allied with power is the most ferocious enemy that justice can have. Mm. And I mentioned that, especially as institutions now are saying, now we're going to make this big change, right? Like, like I think about like Quaker Oats and stuff. It almost took like 150 years, right? For people to be like, this is really racist and we're changing. Exactly. Exactly. Because sometimes when you're so many of, you know, our, our ancestors and community members have been fighting for so long and people are like, that's impossible. That can't happen. Mm. And then just to see things that, People kept saying no to just crumble. But like all of a sudden, oh, now we can. It yes. took like two hours. All of a sudden, now we can. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think just remembering our own power because, like you know, 
um, power is not um, conceded without the man, right? As Frederick Douglass said too, like people are not going to just say, here is some of my power. You have to make them really stick their face in the discomfort and show them the, the picture of the ugliness that they're creating in the world for them to kind of feel like, damn, I need to, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Like, I don't want to be, I don't want people to read back and be like, yo, you were Hitler. And I think that's, I don't know if it's a hard thing for people, especially corporations that are changing, but I definitely think people are like, I don't want to be on the wrong side of this. Exactly. You yeah, know? I agree. Um, and so I think, I think people are pleading ignorance. A lot of people are like, we didn't know. And it's just like, you know, you just didn't want to face it. Yes. And when you have that much power, it's unacceptable because you perpetuate the most harm when you have the most power. It is. I I find it fascinating. All of the books that are being sold, that are sold out, that have been around for ages. um, And now everyone is they're buying the books. I saw an article recently in the New York Times, I believe, said, you know, these authors are appreciative that you're buying their books. But now it's time to do the work. So I think they can buy all the books. And like you said, but you, it's time to do the work consistently and to be as exhausted as we are in the constant daily struggle of it all. Right. And then we'll start to see some change. Yeah. Then we'll start to see some change. And I even want to call out the New York times, you know, like I read the New York times every day and I feel right now it's a popular season to have black people write opinion pieces and all that. And I saw, you know, in particular for Juneteenth, they had several black writers for their opinion pieces. But then a couple of days ago, like it had went back to all white writers. Yeah. So I'm like, we're like, let's make sure that this is not just a season. Like this is like here to say that we are um, really committed to making sure that we're getting diverse points of view um, in our writing, in the, in the cultural narratives and the stories as they're happening to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like let's make sure that it's not white centered, that it's not heteronormative centered, that it's not, you know, able body centered. Let's make sure that we're really, calling people to task and that you are allowing other people's stories to, to, to have a place and an imprint in the social fabric. You know, mm-hmm. like I think too many of our stories have gotten lost. Too many of our great writers in the black community who we've been know, who we've yeah. been the great. Yeah. Now white yeah. people, you didn't know about, I'm like, you guys need to stop. Yes, I knew about so-and-so. Exactly. Yes, I knew about Tulsa, Oklahoma since I was little. Yes. yes, I knew about, you know, because this is, yes, we have a black national anthem. Yes, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, exactly. You know, and yeah. we need to not forget this as a people because we don't want to forget the people that have been doing this work because sometimes we make the mistake of saying, well, no one has ever, or, or people, how come people haven't tried to dismantle this before? And I'm like, we've had plenty of movements and people exactly. have done this, and then it gets dismantled, and the social amnesia is so terrible, so intentional, mm-hmm. that when you talk to young people and they didn't know, or even older folks, right, yeah. and you don't know certain things. Sometimes when I'm uncovering certain things, I'm like, I can't believe I didn't know this before. Yeah, so We have an obligation to seek out knowledge and other mediums, too, outside of the New York Times, right? Like, mm-hmm. See now, and there's color lines, and there's to be wire news. Like, let's and maybe there's plenty I don't know. So even if people know more resources where people are doing truth telling in ways that are not um, centered on the white gaze and how white people are going to receive be affected, exactly right, truthful information. Because sometimes mm-hmm. we change the seasoning of our recipes to make sure white people it's more palatable don't burn. Right? Yeah, yeah exactly. So we gotta make you know, like no. We're not going to whitify the food. The spices are in the stew. And they're yes. staying in the stew. And they're staying. Yeah. 
Speaking of stories and learning stories as well, I'd like to ask, do you know if you're the story of how you were born? And if you'd I like to share? Do. I do. So I was born, my mom was 21 when she had me and she got, my mom's from Belize um, and she is ethnically Garifuna. Um, Garifuna is an Afro-Indigenous group in Central America. A lot of the Garifunas that you meet are from Honduras. I think the largest population of um, Garifunas are from Honduras, but they're all over um, Central America. So they're in Belize, uh, small groups in Guatemala, Nicaragua. Um, so she got here when she was 19, had me when she was 21. And she really wanted me because I think about like, now I'm like, I'm afraid to, like, I'm not ready to have a child still. And I'm like, hey, I can't believe my mom had me like 11 years. Technically, yeah. right? my time, I would have had an 11. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But I was a really wanted baby. Um, she was going through like so much, just being a new immigrant to this country, um, dealing with the dynamics that was my parents' marriage. Um, and she said that I like, I was born at uh, Mount Vernon Hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wives helped deliver me. She said, I just came right out. I came out in the morning at around like 8.30 or 9 a.m. I breastfed. Um, not only did I breastfeed, but I was a greedy ass. <laughs> <laughs> like my mom was like, you just did too much. Like, <laughs> you couldn't get enough of the good stuff. I was not. I was super... You know, I was super spoiled. Um, and so I was like really wanted. And, you know, and my mom's like a really incredible mom. So she like really like, again, like being so young, 21's young. Yes. You know, yeah. it's very young. And to just be able to like, and she wasn't taken care of by her biological mom. Like my mom was raised by her, um, by my great grandparents. They took care of my mother. And so for her to just instinctively know how to be like a great mom Cause I, I don't think that's something that like, cause we don't teach people how to be good parents. Right. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Just tap into that. And my father had influence over that too, you know, like, so I was breastfed and, um, made sure that I didn't watch too much TV when I was little and, you know, that it was a learning environment. I learned to read very early. Um, I was a very inquisitive child and my mom really like seeded that. Um, you know, so I'm, I feel like really blessed, not just for like the birth, but just for like raising me. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I still grew up in the projects, but I had the privilege of having two parents, you know, who were on the same page in a lot of ways about parenting and about mm-hmm. like, what it means to have like a healthy environment for a young person, you know, and the midst yeah. of cra- a lot of craziness, but like, I, I do want to like commend them for that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, the thing about that I like about your story is where you talk about like she wasn't raised by her mother, but she was raised by her her grandmother, right? And I was I was partially raised by my grandmother as well. But there is this love that comes from a grandparent when they're raising a grandchild, because I feel that they've learned some of the errors that they did as 
parents. And so they're able to like wholeheartedly give this love to this child in a way that is completely different because they have so much knowledge of what happened in the past. But then that child then receives all of that love as well. And that's how she knew how to to love you because she was loved so unconditionally that she was able to give it to you. That's a beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing. Oh, and that concludes our podcast. Thank you so much, Malika, for being on. This is a great talk. I'm so excited for everyone to hear about it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And I appreciate you. And I appreciate you sharing your time and your story with us. It's, so, it's one that needs to be told. Gracias. Thanks for listening to the Clear Birth Podcast. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. You can find me on Instagram at the Clear Birth Podcast. If you want to send me an email, you can reach me at theclearbirthpodcast at gmail.com. Adios. Hasta luego. Goodbye. Until next time.